Welcome back, everybody, to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. It's been a while since we've last recorded. Uh, yep. How long has it been, David? Uh, I think about a month at this point. Um, yeah, <laughs> could be, could be, could be slightly different than that. I'm not entirely sure. A variety of things. David was traveling. Also, we've been very busy at the Lex Rex yeah. Institute. But before we get into some updates, let's play our intro. Look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. So how have you been, David? Uh, did, Pretty good. I'm thrown off because I didn't. Uh, I, I, it looked like you were playing the intro, but I didn't hear anything. Um, oh, so that's <laughs> Well, uh, we'll edit that in afterward then. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been uh, I've been all right. Uh, I got back to uh, the sweet land of freedom, America, uh, for a couple of weeks uh, recently. Uh, could you could you smell freedom in the air when you got here? Uh, it was it was like a great weight of oppression had been lifted off my shoulders uh, from the second I uh, actually no, that's not true because uh, I felt very oppressed by the customs line at JFK. Oh, fair, um, fair enough. It yeah. was. <laughs> it took an extremely long time to get through customs, and that, I know the that British did not are the feel... most are the most notorious smugglers in history. I think it's how they <laughs> built their empire, at least economically speaking. So I imagine it's quite a bit easier to get through customs there. Updates about Lex Rex. There's been a lot, so yeah, I don't think we've talked about any of the work we've been doing in Shasta County yet, have we, David? Uh, no, because I think, as far as I remember, that's come up in the last uh, two or three weeks. Um, and it's been about a month, I think, since the last time we were on the show. So, so this is yeah. kind of a topic in its own right. Uh, but mm -hmm. Shasta County led the way in becoming the first county in the nation to reject Dominion tabulation machines for their elections and switch to manual counting. And we were very closely involved mm -hmm. in that process. We've been communicating with uh, some of the, the Board of Supervisors there. Uh, one of them contacted me, basically just wanted to know, how does this work legally? Can we do this? Well, yeah, of course you can do it, but there are some challenges under California election law, uh, but nothing we can't navigate. And since then, we've been getting tons of interest from other counties who want to do the same thing. Other mm -hmm. counties in California, other counties throughout the country. We've actually put up a primer on switching your county to manual counting on our website, lexrex.org, uh, which by the way, by the time this comes out, the new version of our website will have launched. So check that out. Yeah. We'll put a link to that article in the description. Uh, but sort of what the purpose of that is to tell you the step-by-step -step of what it takes here. And you don't need that many people to do it. You, you can get it underway with a handful of people. And this article we've written will allow you to gauge where you are in that process so that we, you can tell us and then we can help you give you any resources you need to make it the rest of the way. Shasta's definitely got their work cut out for him now, but... We're yeah. going to be helping them out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that that's that's very exciting. Why would a county want to switch to manual mm -hmm. counting? Isn't that just sort of old fashioned and for fuddy duddies? Uh, you know, I've, got, well, I've got two answers to that. <laughs> First one is yes. So what? <laughs> it's better. Like, come on. Like, I, I prefer my keyboard on my computer to my touch screen on my phone. Like, do I really want to vote? on a machine with a touch screen, like some kind of dumb monkey 
No, I don't. That's the less serious answer. <laughs> but like, who? I mean, but honestly, who cares? Like, who cares if it's an old-fashioned way of doing it? We know that it works. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think that's um, you know I, I saw some of the uh, some of the literature that was being put out by the people you know who operate the voting system and saying why Shasta shouldn't shouldn't switch. Excuse me. Um, and yeah, basically a big part of it was just, well, it'll be a little bit slower and it's, you know, yeah. that was they don't even the have point. data on that. That's just based on an estimate. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, well, if you have to do this and you have to do this and, and some of it also, uh, you know, was sort of a dubious interpretation of what the actual requirements were. Right. Um, and it's not but, even true. Like look at the results in Maricopa where we've been doing a lot of work challenging Maricopa's results in 2022. We've been involved in Carrie Lake's contest on that. Mm -hmm. um, but the big issue there was they printed all these ballots that were the wrong size for their tabulators. Yeah. So they couldn't feed them in. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me that takes less time than manual counting. You know, they're not yeah. comparing apples to apples here. They're comparing electronic tabulation when it goes perfectly with yeah. manual counting when it goes at its worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, that, that's a classic tactic, you know. <laughs> of course, yeah. But the more important reason, other than just, you know, who cares if it's old-fashioned, is yeah. being old-fashioned, being having paper, having a paper trail, having a, a chain of custody on these ballots is a desirable feature in your elections because elections need to have two essentially opposed things going on, sort of by nature. You need anonymity on the one hand for people who are voting. You don't want to be able to tie somebody back to the vote that they cast. But you also need reliability. Yeah. You, know, you need to be able to authenticate what those votes were. That's very difficult to do if you hand things to a machine that uses proprietary software where the citizens do not have a right to inspect that software. You know, I've heard it compared before Using a machine for tabulation is the same as going into a booth, being told that you're talking to somebody very reliable, handing that very reliable person your vote, and then expecting them to accurately convey that vote to somebody else, you know, verbally telling them, I vote for person A, and expecting them to then go tell somebody else that you voted for person A. They might do it. They might be very reliable. But it's just not a trustworthy system. You know, it's, yeah. You, you, at the end of the day, you can't look back at it and verify whether or not that person was trustworthy. And, you know, people will tell you up and down that's not true. Uh, these machines have never been shown to be unreliable. Well, I mean, first off, how could you? If yeah. it goes into the machine and then it comes out the other side, how could you possibly show that it's unreliable? But on the other hand, that's not really the point. The point is being able to prove that it is reliable. Yeah. People will say, and you know, it's true humans can also, you know, mess with the system. You can also get some unreliability on the human end. But I think this is more than one human do it. Exactly. This is my biggest point in favor of a manual system to corrupt a paper ballot system on a scale that's significant. Yeah. You need to rope in tons of people because right. one individual person is not going to count that many votes. And, you know, if there's a supervisor who needs to look the other way, that's another person. And, right. you know, you're just small scale corruption is still possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's easy to slip in a handful of ballots here and there. You could even have, you know, thousands of people slip in these ballots, but it's a big coordinated effort if you do that. Right. So corruption is still possible. It's 
always going to be a risk in elections, but go on, David. Yeah. And with an electronic system, innately, you have a handful of specialists who know how the system works to begin with and who have to, you know, maintain the system, who have to uh, test the system prior to the, to the actual election and, you know, will actually have access to this thing. Right. One person has significantly more scope for action. Yeah. Well, not even necessarily a person. Or, like, yeah, they, or the software itself. They update the, the software on these machines, usually on a USB flash drive. You, and yeah. you you have new software loaded on this flash drive. You plug it in. You basically flash the firmware on these things. And you can update them. Yeah. They use the same flash drive for every machine in the precinct. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is tamper with that flash drive, and you're able to tamper with all the machines. Yeah. And, and that's those kinds of problems that you can say, okay, but we'll work out the kinks in electronic voting eventually. No, you won't. These are always susceptibilities this kind of a system is going to have. It, it's not a, a problem that's specific to particularly corrupt companies or, you know, a flawed method of implementation. Mm-hmm. It's necessarily the case with electronic voting. And that's why we oppose it. Uh, it really has nothing to do. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about Dominion and the rest of them. I don't, I mean, I probably have an opinion on that, but it's a personal opinion and it doesn't affect any of the rest of this. I just want to say, as we've said multiple times with other sort of election law issues, the outcome and whether any particular thing actually went wrong or was, you know, corrupted in some way isn't the point. The point is to have a system that we can feel quite confident is reliable from you know from from a systemic point of view that's much more important than saying well uh there's no evidence that any one election did go wrong that's not right. the point but anyway this is a huge movement we think it's extremely important and if you want help switching your county to manual counting we're doing a lot of that work totally free of charge uh mm-hmm. we'll certainly give initial you know guidance on what to do totally free of charge so give us a call send us Use our new website. Use our form on that <laughs> website to uh, request some help. We're, we'll be happy to help you out. And we can get the whole nation switched back to elections the way they were done in the good old days. Oh, we did an, another election-related case we've been involved in is the, the – uh, it, it's the case up in San Francisco challenging their yeah. law that allows non-citizens to vote – in elections for school board. We talked about that one in the previous episode of the podcast. I won't yeah. say too much more about that, but that, that one is going along. Um, yeah. I, th- I think there've been some new, um, some new uh, amicus briefs that have been filed in that. Uh, if people are really interested, um, we can, uh, I think we've, we've posted a couple updates about that, that we can link in the description. Yeah. Let's do uh, that. Yeah. See, so another one is, Oh, our Los Alamitos case. So that's the case on behalf of the 10 year old girls who were forced to share dormitories with, persons who would not tell them their biological gender. Anyway, in that one, uh, we, we filed, so our lawsuit is against both the school district for failing to inform parents and the camp itself. Cause you kind of have to sue the camp here. Um, if you don't do that, the school district's just going to say, we didn't know any of this. This camp is out of control. We blame them, you know, point fingers over there. So the camp's got to be on there so they can respond. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than filing an answer to our complaint, rather than filing a motion to strike our complaint, saying we didn't state a claim or something like that. You know what they did? I do not. I don't know that I've been uh, been keeping up too much on this one. They filed an anti-slap motion against us, 
So what's anti-slap? Well, slap is is strategic litigation against public participation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means they are arguing that our lawsuit is an attempt to stop their counselors from exercising their free speech rights. In other words, indoctrinating 10-year-old girls with propaganda about transgender identification um, and housing counselors in dorms with little girls, despite failing to tell those little girls what gender they are, that is an exercise of their counselors' free speech, according to them. Now, it's utterly absurd. I think it goes to show that Pally, this institute, absolutely does advocate for what these people were doing. You know, we were sort of given the benefit of the doubt on this. that They just didn't supervise or something. But I, I think that this anti-slap makes it very difficult to maintain that. So we're going to go very aggressive on this one. I think that's all for our updates. Uh, what else is on our agenda today, David? Uh, first up, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I feel like we've done a lot of, uh, of First Amendment cases on this show, but uh, we have another one. Uh, oh, it's a big one. People like it. You know, it's number one. <laughs> People do. I think uh, probably the most broadly popular amendment, at least in theory, um, in practice, not so much a lot of the time, but yeah. uh, we're talking the one about... they follow the most is probably the Third Amendment. Like, they don't violate that one a whole heck of a lot. Uh, <laughs> quartering soldiers? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, that's... It doesn't yeah. come up that much. I feel like we haven't really, um, we haven't really tried to do that uh, for maybe ever in American history, actually. There actually were um, some issues with that during the pandemic, where they were trying to commandeer hotels. That's and right. For I things. forgot about that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but not a whole, it doesn't come up a whole lot, you know, but no. sometimes it does. Anyway, we're talking about the case Groff v. DeJoy, which, uh, had an oral argument heard, uh, on April 18th. So a couple weeks ago now, this um, is a crazy one. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> this went to know, the Supreme court, by the way, you know, like yes. this was sufficiently controversial that multiple. I, I don't know. Did the lower courts side differently on this from each other or did the court just um, it anyway? I know that the, I think both the, both the prior courts f- found the same way. If I remember correctly, I, I, would I wouldn't hope. swear to that, but I'm surprised the court granted cert on this. I thought this was a well-settled issue. Well, um, they, they ruled against Groff, um, which is, Oh, they, both of the lower courts ruled again. Where yeah. is it? Okay. A <laughs> little bit of background. What's going on here? So uh, more importantly, where is this? Yeah. Which part of the country is this? Uh, so this was uh, originated in Pennsylvania, and it was heard by That's uh, right. a Pennsylvania court, and then uh, by a federal district court. So uh, what is Mr. Groff trying to do here? So he worked previously for the post office. Um, you know, in a, the the exact details of his job came up in the in the course of the argument. Uh, and, so just to sort of get that out of the way uh, briefly, he's basically like a, a, a substitute mail carrier, the same way some big school districts have permanent substitute teachers. So you're just like sort of always on standby to fill in for somebody who can't do it. You're in the post route. office reserve. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, in, <laughs> so, you know, a, a regular mail carrier calls out or whatever, or is on vacation, you know, you're just sort of in this pool of people who fill in to, to cover right. those shifts. And um, I suspect that reserve status is the reason why this case became an issue at all. I, I, I think, think it's it, a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, but but if, if so you're he, supposed to be on call, you're supposed to be on call, I guess is yeah. the argument here. Yeah. So and anyway, what happens with him? So he, he started that job in 2012. And in 2013, USPS reached a deal with Amazon that for the first time, 
the website, not the river. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Not, (laughs) not the abstract concept of the Amazon river. Um, so they, they had, uh, now a new deal. Wait, are you taking the Heracleitian view here? (laughs) I don't think we need to get into that and I'm probably going to cut this. (laughs) No, leave it in. We can confuse people. All right. Uh, people, big I don't know fans the of, are abstract concepts, but... Yeah, big fans of pre-Socratic Greek philosophy will we'll love that <laughs> reference. Um, man, we, this is a, a nerdy show. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so for, for the first time, postal carriers were being asked to do Sunday routes. You know, as everyone knows, classically, you know, the mail doesn't come on Sunday. That changes with this new Amazon That's deal. That's a line Harry their, Potter. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I've been listening uh, to those in the car, so I remember. Yeah. (laughs) So Amazon wants their packages delivered every day of the week. So now suddenly these people are being asked to cover Sunday shifts. Groff believes that he, you know, he has a religious obligation not to work on Sunday. Uh, It's a theological position sometimes called Sabbatarianism after the Sabbath. He's Uh, a Protestant Christian, right? Yes. Yeah. Which weirdly ends up being an issue here. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, you know, weirdly, he's the most common religion in the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Not not the most common religion on the Supreme Court, though, uh, which no, I think no, may, may also uh, play a part in this a little bit. But anyway, um, he doesn't want to work on Sundays. Uh, he refuses to do it. The The department ends up uh, disciplining Pause him for, for a this. Second. Mm-hmm. I thought not working on Sundays was the entire reason people became postal workers. <laughs> uh i mean prior to 2012 or 2013 rather when they started doing this deal with amazon you may have had a point <laughs> i feel like there's a reliance interest here there there could be uh and you know i i think you certainly expect working for the for the government to get at least as many sort of guaranteed days off as anybody else does you know you've got yeah, these, I mean, we're, these holidays we're, we're doing we're doing our episode on qualified immunity soon and if there's yep. anything's clear in our system, it's that if they can think of a new perk to give to public employees, <laughs> they'll do it. Yeah. Which, by the way, nobody, I, I realize this, and we're going to make it very central in our marketing, but nobody who works at LexRex and nobody on LexRex's board has ever worked in government. So we have no conflict <laughs> of interest in our cases. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. But anyway, yeah. uh, and actually, now that, you, now that you mention it, not wanting to work on Sunday also became part of the, the case. Uh, because basically, one of the main reasons the post office didn't want to give him these days off is that the other carriers didn't like working on Sunday either. And they complained, a few of them, apparently not that many, actually. Does, he, but, he gets to not work on Sunday just because he has a religious objection to it. I don't want right. to work on Sunday either. <laughs> exactly. And as we'll see, uh, that, that comes up um, in the argument as well. But uh, eventually... Yeah, I can't believe that anybody... Oh, I'm getting too ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, but eventually he resigns. Uh, but, you know, he feels that he was discriminated against uh, for being disciplined for you know, resigning makes to... the case hard. Yeah, well, as, uh, as a procedural matter. I mean, the issues are the same. But at any rate, you know, he, he feels that he was discriminated against uh, in, you know, surface level. Certainly, uh, I, I'm inclined to agree. Um, yeah. You know, uh, if if someone feels that their religion mandates that they abstain from some particular behavior and you basically say, we're going to make you do it anyway because other people are complaining about having to do it. Right. So the, the Title VII standard and the standard the EEOC applies is whether or not an employer is 
able to accommodate, is reasonably able to accommodate someone or whether mm-hmm. or not it's going to impose a burden on them that they just can't, um, yeah. they, they are unable to accommodate yeah. that person. And we thought Undo about this a hardship. lot before. Yeah. That's the language used. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about that a lot before. We do a lot of cases that are on exactly that issue. That's the way everybody's accepted a lot of work. Um, and, you know, so what smart employers will do is they'll say, we do recognize you have a valid religious objection to this, but it's going to impose an undue hardship. Right. That's not that's not what the post office is saying here. In fact, just the opposite. It's not going to impose an undue hardship on them. Because there are other people who can fill in on Sunday. The yeah. issue is those people don't want it. Right. A big part of the argument for Groff is that when you're looking at undue hardship and whether an accommodation causes undue hardship, uh, they're arguing you have to look at the business as a whole. So in other words, does this cause undue hardship for the post office, not for Joe, the postal carrier who really doesn't like working on Sundays um, as an individual employee? Uh, and that, so that, that's a, that was a big part of what the, uh, what the argument concerned. I think the idea of undue hardship has usually been construed to be financial. It's yeah. going to cost us too much money to do this. Yeah. Not our other employees won't like it. Right. And so I, it, the the factual background was a little hazy. I didn't have time to, to track down every element of this. But I think that the post office was alleging that they had lost, you know, a significant part of their workforce because of this. People getting disgruntled because and quitting or transferring. But I think Quitting because they be... had to work on Sunday or quitting because they didn't like that Groff didn't have to work on Sunday. Basically, because they had to I work don't on believe Sunday. that for a second. I mean, I get that the Supreme Court has to abide by the factual findings of the lower court unless there's clear error. But yeah, that seems like clear. Error. I can't imagine anybody would quit their job because somebody else gets special treatment. Yeah, everybody that's ever had a job has seen other employees get special treatment. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and as best I was able to determine, only one person ever said anything about Sunday scheduling uh, when they when they explained why. Oh, that's an undue hardship. You lost one employee. Actually, they didn't even lose him, did they? He just complained about it. Yeah, you know, like like I said, I'm not 100 percent clear on the on the factual background. Frankly, it it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it it sounded like it was kind of a stupid argument, right? Like, that's just kind of a dumb <laughs> argument to make, isn't it? That this imposes an undue hardship on us because other people don't like that we do it. Yeah, that's the reason why we protect free exercise of religion. Right. Because we know there are lots of forces and factors out in society pushing against the free exercise of religion. People don't like people that have religions that are different from theirs, right? It irritates yeah. people when Jewish people won't work on Saturday. It irritates people that, you know... Uh, Roman Catholics won't eat fish certain times of the year. People don't like well, other people's only religious fish. practices. Only, only eat fish. fish. I'm certain, sorry. Certain the other would probably irritate people too. <laughs> <laughs> it would. Yeah, I'm sure it would. But yeah. But that's um, why we protect these things. That's not a legitimate objection to accommodating someone's religion is that other people will dislike it if we do. Exactly. And that's the, the other big piece of the argument. And we'll hear uh, a bit about this in a second, I think, in that uh, clip from Justice Kagan's questioning. Um, but the, uh, a 1977 case, uh, TWA Inc. V, uh, Hardison, I think is the name of the case. Um, well, let me, let me double check. It's, 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 uh, it's Hardison. Yeah. Hardison, yeah. 77, Hardison. right? Yeah. Um, what, you know, that case and Groff's attorneys yeah, that's the will one, argue. Yeah. That's that shortly after the, the title, title seven civil rights act came out. Yeah. And that's one of the early cases interpreting that. Yeah, but that that basically the the ruling there 
uh, and Groff's attorneys will argue for, for a variety of reasons that it shouldn't hold anymore, was that basically anything <laughs> counts as undue hardship. You know, if it's more than a trivial expense, then it counts. Uh, but I, yeah, I that's think... the thing that we that we run into. Yeah. In our cases, you know, they just say so we did a lot of the COVID-19 uh, mm-hmm. vaccination mandates. And the ones we did, we did really, really well on were the ones where the employer was stupid. And they said, <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not going to accommodate you. Either we don't believe that you actually believe this or, you know, just we're not going to for whatever reason. The ones where we didn't do as well were the ones where they said, oh, oh, yes, we would love to accommodate you. They had their whole interactive process meeting and they said, ah, but you know, can't. unfortunately, we just can't find somewhere that you don't pose a danger to our other employees. Um, so it's going to impose an undue hardship. And, yeah. you know, we actually... I'm kind of downplaying our work because we actually still won the majority of those, like more than 50% of them. <laughs> but but you, you can see our stats go down markedly when yeah. they deny somebody because of the you know, the inability to accommodate as opposed to on the front end. Right. Um, but and anyway, I, I think that brings us, though, to to the, the Kagan clip uh, because her, you know... The, Oh, this She's, is bad, David. She, this is she bad. wants to say that it doesn't really matter if what I think Groff's attorneys argue and what I would say that Hardison just got it wrong flat out. Like that's not a legitimate construal of the phrase undue hardship. No. Um, but she says, well, stare decisis, which viewers or listeners may remember uh, is basically the principle that you abide by precedent where possible. Um, well, yeah, we've talked about that before, right? So stare yeah. decisis, obviously central to our entire legal system, right? Right. The, the idea that past cases will be the law or, or rather serve as authoritative evidence of the law yeah. in future cases. Mm-hmm. It's not really that complicated of a concept. I think that lay people often have difficulty understanding it because they think of the law in terms of statutes, which right. we'll talk about later more at length later in <laughs> yeah. this episode. Mm-hmm. Maybe this episode's really directed to Kagan. Really what? Directed toward Kagan. <laughs> Uh, I guess we could call it, you know, Dear Justice Kagan or something. Uh. Yeah. Anyway, I think you guys get the idea on a basic level of what stare decisis is, right? So, yeah. like, okay, so let's come up with an example, just in case anybody likes examples better. If there is a law that says no one, this is obviously unconstitutional, it's just an example. Yeah. There's a law that says <laughs> no one can wear red on Tuesday. And then David shows up to work because he's a New England boy and he he went to a fancy prep school. So David shows up to work wearing his Nantucket red. My Nantucket reds. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which I, for the record, in fact, I do not have. I want that to be clear. I do not own Nantucket reds, but go on. Yeah. Um, So Nantucket red is more more of a salmon, right? It's not really a red, but it's it's like a dusty pink. Yeah. Yeah. So. He wears his pink shorts to work. We all make fun of him. We say that's illegal. They've outlawed wearing red on Tuesdays. So, you know, we report him to the district attorney. They commence a case against him, prosecute him to the full extent of the law. And they find him guilty of wearing red on Tuesday. Yeah. Well, David appeals that. And the appellate court says, you know, they might call that red, but that's not. But it ain't. Yeah. That, yeah, that's pink. <laughs> and then they say red will be, def- you know, we understand red to be things that are, and they can give a test for what constitutes red, you know, yeah. within one standard deviation of the color of blood. I don't know. 
Like, like I something. Don't, yeah. There's a reason you'd never want a court to define color. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> something like that. The next time when somebody wears, I'm not very good with colors. What's another? Like maroon or something. Yeah. yeah wears maroon yeah. and gets dragged in front of the court. That same standard will apply because of stare right. decisis. This issue's already been decided and it should continue to be decided going forward. Now, sometimes people create really bad standards. Yeah. Sometimes those standards are not consistent with what the law said. Yeah. So like if, if you that? said red is a standard deviation away from the color of the sky on a clear day, um, that's a really bad standard <laughs> for red. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Or, or red is any color with the name red in it. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- that's fair too. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I think that'd be how you'd rule that Nantucket red is red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then people start making like, well, this is just off red. Yeah. I you call know? this it's color like... grass red and it's just or, green. Yeah. <laughs> this color is contra red. Yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite yeah. of red. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, you just get crazy. And then you could see them doing that. And then you just get crazy things where people keep going to jail for wearing colors that are called red. You can see why they might want to revisit that earlier decision, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah. but Kagan has her own opinions on that. Uh-huh. Let's hear what she has to say. Evidence of congressional acquiescence, do we? I mean, this is a statutory decisis, statutory stare decisis case. And we've said over and over that when uh, uh, there's a statute involved rather than the Constitution, stare decisis is at its peak. So far, that's fair, mm-hmm. you know, because the Constitution supersedes every other law. I think that stare decisis is probably a little stronger when it comes to statutes. There's good Supreme Court precedent on that. So, so far, and this so has been, you know, for decades, this has been the rule. Congress has had that opportunity to change it. Congress has not done so. Um, uh, you, you can count on like a finger how many times we have overruled a statutory ruling in that context. That's pretty wrong. Because um, that, would, that would mean that it's happened one time. Um, yeah, that, <laughs> right. Well, unless you count differently from how I do. <laughs> yeah. Three. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably more like like 18 in the past 50 years. Um, yeah. That's not right. <laughs> it's it, it's rare. It's rare to overturn stare decisis on statutory interpretation, but it's, it's just not, I mean, it's not true. Yeah. Two points on that, Your Honor. First, the starting point should be footnote one in Patterson versus McLean, where the court says, in a stare decisis case, mere congressional inaction is not sufficient for this court to abide by an erroneous yeah. interpretation. So, so what he's saying there, her argument was that the reason stare decisis is stronger in a statute than in the Constitution is because if Congress doesn't like the way they interpreted a statute, they can change it. Right. So if they, if they don't do that, that suggests they were, that the court got it right. Yeah. He's responding to that. Mm-hmm. And that's when the court looks to other indicia of congressional acquiescence. That's a different stare decisis rule than any I've ever heard. Which means that the only stare decisis rule she must ever have heard is that mere congressional acquiescence is sufficient not to overrule past precedent. In other words, Uh it's enough always, every time, without exception, if Congress didn't say we hate that ruling, it's a great ruling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that our statutory decisis rule went like this. Um, it doesn't really matter whether the thing is wrong. I mean, stare decisis only has a role to play when the ruling is wrong. If the ruling were right, oh we wouldn't gosh. need statute. 
we wouldn't need stare decisis. Stare decisis has a role to play even when, I mean only when, a ruling is erroneous, and, and still we say um, uh, Congress has had a chance to, the ball was in Congress's court, Congress has not done it for reasons of predictability, for reliability, for reliance, for reasons of the credibility of the judicial system, we maintain what we said about what statutes mean. That is so stupid. Yeah. Um, that is so stupid. That is, there's a reason why we belabored before this how stare decisis works. Yeah. Um, what I, is, what's she saying here? Stare decisis only matters when a past ruling is wrong. Because yeah. I guess, presumably, otherwise, you would just have similar facts come before the case, and they decide the same way, right? Because right cases, you know, right answers to cases are obvious. So why not just make them anew every time? Sorry, decisis, therefore, only matters yeah, if you it, got it, it wrong. It exists only to prop up errors. <laughs> He's literally just, apparently, in her mind, it's just like the system. This is the, okay, no, now... I want to say to be fair, but there's no way to really be fair to this. But <laughs> like if somebody, if Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, the archetypal tyrant, had commissioned somebody to write a defense of why they're going to have only statutory law in Europe now, why they're not going to have binding precedent from past cases. And if that person had really phoned it in on on that defense, it's probably the argument they would make, right? In, Is that stare decisis exists to prop up wrong decisions? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that, no. that would be like kind of kind of the knee jerk lowest common denominator argument against a common law system. Yeah. Um, she works in a common law system. Uh huh. She went to law school in a common law country. She took the bar in a common law country. Now she never practiced law, so I can't say she practiced law in a common law country. But she was dean of a law school. Yeah. In a common law country. She should understand how common law systems work. You'd think. Uh, and I, I have to say, this is the first... I've listened to this clip a few times when I pulled the audio for this. I read the transcript a few times when I was looking through the argument. This is the first time I noticed that in the middle of all the rest of the stuff she says, uh, she says one of the reasons for it being this way is for the credibility of the judicial system. Um, to prop up bad decisions. Well, yeah, it basically so that the court never has to admit that it got something wrong and look bad. <laughs> yeah, the but the reason there. we have it, it, yeah, we, we that's actually a good point. We have all we have all this rhetoric about how mm -hmm. stare decisis is there because of the importance of, um, you know, continuity and predictability right. in our legal system, and because we think that courts are have integrity and they are good evidence of what the law actually says. Yeah, ah, we all know that's not true. It's there to prop up bad decisions so the court doesn't have to <laughs> reveal how flighty and inconsistent they actually are. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, when you get a really bad ruling, the court, the future court can do nothing about it. It's just a signal that Congress needs to do something about it. Um, I mean, this is like this is like what a second creator would say to, to <laughs> like as if you explain to a second creator what stare decisis is and how common law works, their objection would be. But. Well, but why doesn't the judge just get it right each yeah, time why the wouldn't case you just, goes in front of them? Why wouldn't you just say it the right way? Uh, yeah, you, like, <laughs> why wouldn't you just rule on each case correctly? Why would uh -huh. you list? Yeah. I don't even know where to begin on. This is well, truly shameful. Now, <laughs> I feel kind of badly because Justice Kagan seems like a nice lady, but 
This is why you shouldn't put non-practitioners on the court. It's uh well, it it's as you said, it's it's kind of astonishing that this understanding of what stare decisis means and is for more particularly uh like what the purpose of it is it's astonishing that someone with this understanding of it worked in law in any capacity um Uh as far as i'm concerned yeah (laughs) all right okay so (laughs) (laughs) this whole episode might just be this we might save the other one for next week (laughs) week, uh well we could, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so and now um, segue to the Kavanaugh clip. So we mentioned earlier that the fact that uh, Groff is a Protestant becomes mm-hmm. weirdly at issue in this case. Yeah. Right? Well, because his Protestant faith teaches that he can't work on Sunday. Well, it just so happens there are other pr- professing Christians who don't share the belief that you can't work on Sunday. Yeah. Or and it just uh, so happens that yeah. some of those Christians are on the Supreme Court. Uh-huh. Do we want to hear what Kavanaugh has to say? I, I think we do. You know, this Just one. Just in case we're accused of being partisan for the Kagan thing, we're doing both sides of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one I think is more just silly than anything else. But you know, we'll we'll get to that. I, I can't believe this issue was raised. I know, and it's honestly the reason everybody's going so. One last point on Kagan, <laughs> and, and to sort of explain on Kavanaugh, the reason everybody's going so bonkers on this case is because the conclusion is so obvious. I, so they, they yeah. have to fill their hour of oral argument. What are you going to ask? Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's, I, I, like the best I can possibly give Kagan is that she's just sort of grasping at straws for some reason why Groff should lose here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I really want to keep this rule yeah. from 1977. So what about the fact that Starry Decisis is only there to protect wrong decisions? <laughs> Okay, let's hear from Kavanaugh. (laughs) Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, One thing about this case that I think uh, makes it a little more difficult is that there can be religious interests on both sides. And I can just pick up on Justice Kagan's questions. So you have a group of employees um, who are all religious, let's say, uh, but the Catholic and the Baptist don't get it. Uh, don't get the Sunday off because they're told you're the wrong religion or you have the wrong religious beliefs versus the person who has the right religious beliefs. Can you pause that for a second? Sunday off. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, nobody is telling you that you have the wrong religious yeah. beliefs. Two, two, two things I, I want to observe. Oh my God, they, they don't understand the heart of the free exercise clause here. It's that we're not telling yeah. people which religions are right and wrong. We're just allowing them to practice their religion anyway. Like, yeah. well, that core concept hasn't sunk through here. No. So, all right. So you took the second thing I was going to say. So I guess I'll just say the first thing, which is it's interesting that he, you know, Baptists, that's a pretty wide tent. You could be all kinds of different sorts of Baptists, but there are lots of Baptists who also think they can't work on Sundays, just for the record. That Um, was just so that he wouldn't exclusively be referring in his question to Roman Catholics, which was his real question. Yeah. And it is a Roman Catholic. And I uh hate to say this because we're the ones arguing judges should be impartial. But it might seem that representation on the court matters. Maybe so, but anyway. But anyway, the <laughs> I more would hope important they can be part, impartial anyway. But yeah, the, the more important part is that yeah, you're right that that's misunderstanding what's both what's happening in this case and what the First Amendment is for. Um, but I think we should probably wrap up this clip now. Yeah, yeah. Does that matter? Uh, if I'm understanding the hypothetical correctly, no. you have. <laughs> 
<laughs> the way the guy started, he's like, um, <laughs> is yeah. this a real question? Uh-huh. <laughs> One employee who has a strong objection to working on Sunday and others who do One not. One who has a religious, let's say your client, okay? <laughs> and then you have a Catholic who says, well, I, I would prefer not to work on Sunday either, but if my religion doesn't <laughs> compel me not to work on Sunday, and a Baptist says the same thing. Wait, and, uh, these, re- these things your religion should... compels you to do sure are beneficial, aren't they, David? Uh, yeah. you know, those religious restrictions, those sure are just a favor that gets yep. handed to you. By... Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not sure that it would ever be inconvenient to not be able to work on Sunday. Right. Employee says the same thing. Um, and, um, you know, on Saturday. And, but not uh, me. But that's, that's not good enough. Not so good your, enough. your religion's uh-huh. not good enough. So there's a religious uh-huh. interest. Yeah, if your religion teaches that you can't work on a certain day, you can't work on that day. It has nothing to do with being good enough. If it doesn't teach that, there's yeah. nothing prohibiting you from working on that day. Yeah, I'll, I'll hold my fire until the end of the clip because I okay, have some sorry. things to say about this, but... Arguably, in that sense, too, as some of the amicus briefs point that out. I just wanted, is that irrelevant? Should we think about that at all? I mean, it seems concerning that you're told, in effect, uh, you don't get Sunday off, even though you're religious. Uh, The other guy next to you gets Sunday off because he's religious, but his religion (laughs) gives him a little more more benefit there. Certainly Uh the statute does frame this in terms of the person who asks for the accommodation and believes their religious practice requires them to do something. And I think Congress understood that Mm -hmm. there is something different in in kind about asking somebody to surrender Uh their conscience or their job than it is about giving up a preference, even if it's a religious preference, but certainly as to secular preferences as well. Now, again, if if the employees feel that that's unfair and they go to their employer and they complain or they quit, then that's something that the employer could put forward as evidence uh, that could ultimately rise to the level of an undue hardship on the business if they can show. If the the concrete effect on the business is as a result of religious discrimination from other employees, that should not affect your your First Amendment rights. Yeah, and... (laughs) So there's, yeah, there's a few things I want to comment on about Kavanaugh's line of reasoning here, though. Um, First, the idea... I forgot why we were listening to this. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, the idea that... I don't like that that answer. The idea that this is a question... I would not concede that much on one of our cases. I think that's too much to concede. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, the idea that Kavanaugh seems to put forward is that this is a reward you get for being religious, in quotes, for having one in the of the abstract. good religions that this constitution <laughs> cares about. Well, it's the way he frames it, it's like a reward you get for being a religious person in the abstract, uh-huh. which is absolutely not. But only not, some religions get it. <laughs> right. That's not what's happening there. Yeah. It I, I you also alluded to this earlier, but the idea that like just get not working on Sunday is in an unambiguous sense a benefit. Like right. that means you're not getting paid on Sundays, which other people uh-huh are uh like you know it's not just a bonus it's right you know there there is more to it than that but yeah the idea that oh that that guy doesn't have to eat pork but i do Uh (laughs) yes that's not fair they should make him eat pork that's what's served in the cafeteria today i don't like pork so he he should (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Come on. I mean, people have different preferences. Right. But yeah, it, the idea that somehow this is a judgment between the relative merits of different religion, rather than one guy saying, I am religiously obligated to not work on Sundays. That, that like, th- there seems to be a basic confusion there. And I don't understand right. why that's confusing to, to Justice Kavanaugh, well, but it seems to be. Yeah. But at, at any rate, I I fully expect that the court is going to rule in favor of Groff. Oh, yeah. uh, we won't, gonna, we won't know for a while. I don't know if, I, I don't know if they're going to overturn a hard set or not, but. Right. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult to envision a, a, a situation in which he doesn't win on this. Uh, so right. we, we may, we may talk about this again if, if something in the opinion is significant. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I don't really see a situation in which the post office actually wins the case here. I hope they do overturn Hardison. It's, it's not a good ruling. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, okay. and part of the reason why it's not a good ruling is exactly what that lawyer got into toward the end there, which is the undue hardship. It, conceivably, the thing that imposes an undue hardship could be that all of the other employees despise people with this religion. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to accommodate them. Well, that yeah. cuts against the entire reason why the First Amendment exists. That can't be the ruling here. Right. Yeah. Now, this is, we should probably clarify, this is not technically a First Amendment case. It's a Title VII case. Yeah. But. to be to, Yes, to be fair. But it, it fundamentally implicates free basic, yeah. basic, yeah, free exercise of religion issues. Okay. <laughs> so this actually dovetails really well into our next topic. Yeah. Which is statutory versus constitutional law. Yeah, and we 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 got into that quite a bit with uh, with Kagan, um, but yeah. this is probably, in my opinion, anyway, this is one of the most common sort of mistakes people make in terms of uh, judicial philosophy, understanding how law works in America. Yeah, they and, tend and apparently to read... it's, it's, it's bled into the popular mindset. Yeah, pretty thoroughly, but mm-hmm. it, it's deeply disturbing to see that it's bled into. <laughs> The highest you know, court the mindset of <laughs> the highest court in the land. Yeah. Yeah. So so what are we talking about here? Statutory versus constitutional law. Yeah. So, you know, we've we've talked about this idea before, but for most of human history, to the extent that any country, any political order could be said to have a constitution, it was usually unwritten right. um, for for a very, very long time. Arguably, the American Constitution is the first sort of fully written constitutional system. I think that's, you know, arguably yes, but I think that's pretty well accepted fact. Yeah, you know, depending on how you want to look at things like Magna Carta in England, but that's only ever been a that's part. A part of the Constitution. Yeah, exactly. We we uh, actually have this is our foundational document. This is our highest law. It's the first time that happened in world history. Right, but the the basic no one had ever done that. Yeah, but the the basic idea. It's, you know, why hadn't they done that? I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> why had why hadn't they done that? Well, because the concept of enacting a highest law is kind of confusing, right? Because theoretically, whoever's enacting it would have more authority than the law. So how could it be a highest law? Yeah. Well, America very cleverly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that it's actually very clever, but what we did is the same thing we did in our Declaration of Independence, where we said that, you know, um, for this reason, governments are constituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Yeah. So the governed gave their consent. And that's the reason why the Constitution opens with these three words, larger than the rest. We the people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We the people enacted it. And the people responsible for going to the convention and then the 
well, in many cases, it was actually a plebiscite. But in the states where it was a, a ratifying convention, mm-hmm. those were also trustees, representatives of the people who were speaking on behalf of the people. So the people of the states, you know, not just the American people, but the people of the states, because that's significant, were the, were the driving authority behind ratification of the Constitution. So that's the reason why we have the first written Constitution, because it's the first real recognition of popular sovereignty. Yeah. And constitutional law, and this is sort of the, the, the thesis, I guess, that we're getting at here, is fundamentally distinct from statutory law, laws that you would find in like, you know, for instance, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, you know, a sort of specific right. act of Congress. The constitutional law, there, there's a couple of important things about it. Number one, obviously, as the highest law, you know, it has a different amount of authority, so to speak, you know, different uh, more standing. Yeah, it has more. But also like a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> but also because it is uh, about that, you know, that grant of power from we the people, you read it in a fundamentally different way as well. So, you know, you, re- you read a typical statutory law and it probably says you can't do X, right? You're not allowed to do this thing or, you know, doing this thing will result in a penalty, you know, wearing red right. on Tuesdays as in your example. So, yeah. You, you know now, even, okay. if it, even if it's written positively, like even if yeah. it's written as ketchup shall be defined as X, Y, Z of necessity, that excludes all things not right. Meaning that description from being ketchup. Right. You know? And it's very different with constitutional law where constitutional law is saying this is the extent of things you can do to the government, essentially. And, and we'll, we'll get into some of the background in this momentarily, but I think that's the basic way. Uh, to distinguish between the two. The Constitution now, says... Now, I get how it's con- confusing because mm-hmm. I would think we'd be used to written constitutions by now. They've been around for a while and a lot of countries have them. Although I guess part of the confusion is the other countries didn't actually enact them out of the, the will of the sovereign people. Yeah. Um, they so got like, them. We got confused and thought ours was like theirs, even though ours... <laughs> I mean, it's like if you watch those Star Wars sequels where they're nothing like the original ones, but then people use them to reinterpret what happened in the original ones. Or the prequels, too, they do that. Um, anyway, that's kind of <laughs> tangent. Yeah, <laughs> that, that might be a, a personal pet peeve. <laughs> it's really annoying. But anyway, they do that with other constitutions, I think. But I can see why this would be confusing to people originally. When we first wrote a constitution, yeah. statutes are typically written. Your constitution is also written. Written very differently from a statute, but also yes. written. Uh-huh. These but, are the same, right? Like, look at these. These are the same. Not quite. But no. No. No, um, not the same. And, uh, you know, to show that we're not getting this out of nowhere, uh, I, I pulled a couple of quotations from Locke, John Locke, who we've talked about before, probably the most important philosophical precedent to the U.S. Constitution. So this is from Locke's second treatise on government. And he says, to understand political power right and derive it from its original. So in other words, understand where it comes from. We must consider what state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. Uh, And so, you know, I think there's probably a familiar concept. There's a lot of of stuff in there that's frequently misinterpreted. So, yes. (laughs) uh, Yeah. (laughs) I I think, you know, there's a, a couple important things to note about there. One is that he still acknowledges that there's a law of nature. There's fundamental 
rules that exist even without a political order. And that's right. also true of the U.S. documents, you know. The political uh, order is how we structure administration of those rules. Right. Um, and then the other thing I want to note is that I, I do think that there is a certain common sense, though, to, to the rest of it where, you know, imagine there's only two people on Earth, right? And they live thousands of miles apart from each other. Uh, you know, they, they can both do whatever they want. What? Yeah. They probably don't need a government. No, they can do whatever they want. <laughs> and no matter, you know, they're, they're at perfect liberty to do whatever they want. And they're not violating anyone's rights. But, you know, you put when them in contact. interact with each other, it becomes a problem. Exactly. So you need government to administer those interactions. Right. And that necessarily means that you're sort of allowing your own rights to be modified in some ways. Right. You know, you're no longer I don't think at, that's true. at perfect liberty. I don't think that's true. No, because if, look, I can, without it, living thousands of miles from everybody else, I can decide to eat crab legs. I can decide not to eat crab legs. Yep. I could even write in the sand, I'm never going to eat crab legs. I don't think I've relinquished any rights by doing that. I've just decided not to eat crab legs and codified that going yeah. forward. Fair enough. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to word this, um, basically. Um, it's a contract. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess you, you, don't, are... you don't sign away rights in a contract. You just agree to do certain things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. I'm trying to think of the right way to express what I mean here. The exercise of those rights may look slightly different. Yes. In, in, in From that moment on. Right. Um. Yeah, you know, you, you are still the possessor of them, but they still exist. Uh, well, okay, think, think of it this way. A bank is a trustee of your money, right? Yeah. If I take my money that was previously like just wads of cash that I could take and use as however I wanted, and I put it in a bank, it's still my money. I mean, our banking system is ridiculous. But like if it's, if it's a good <laughs> bank that just, just holds your money, you know, like, like a second grader would think of a bank, that money's still yours. <laughs> But yeah. if you go home and you're like, I want to use my money. Oh, it's not here anymore. You have to do something. I can't use yeah. my money. You don't have fewer rights, but if you want to use your money, you have to go to a bank teller. You have right. to fill out a, a withdrawal slip. You have to take the money out of the bank. I mean, that's you haven't lost any rights by doing that. You've assigned those rights for administration to somebody else. Now, there's certain procedures you have to go through for their exercise. Yeah. And to, again, in the interest of showing that this is not something we're making up, that this is actually part of our system, this is uh, from the Federalist Papers, which, as you probably remember, uh, were, you know, expressions on the part of a number of the founding fathers on what they understood the Constitution to be for. It was an argument uh, to get the people on board with it. Yeah, it's Here's... really a propaganda piece, but it's one of yeah. the most eloquent and <laughs> philosophically cogent propaganda pieces ever written. Yeah. So. So and this is from Federalist number two, and I think you'll you'll recognize how much they you know have in common with Locke's basic idea there. It says nothing is more certain than the indispensable necessity of government. Some people might dispute that, but anyway, <laughs> no, the state maybe. I think everyone yeah. thinks we need to be governed. F fair enough. Fair, fair enough. And you know, we're, this is not an anarchist show, for the record. I, I've got um, an anarchist friend, and mm -hmm. yeah, he would. I think he would agree that mankind needs to be governed in some yeah. fashion. He just doesn't advocate the state. 
Yeah. But anyway, so nothing is more certain than the indispensable necessity of government, and it is equally undeniable that whenever and however it is instituted, the people must cede to it some of their natural rights in order to vest it with requisite powers. So again, like, you know, you're sort of giving the exercise in a certain sense of those rights over, but they remain your rights. Um, They came from you. You are their lawful possessor. Right. And that is the fundamental reason. Yeah. You know? (laughs) <laughs> that is the fundamental reason why constitutional law is different from statutory law is because the government didn't have rights of its own that it's just going to employ uh, under certain. It was asked to do yeah. certain tasks on behalf of the people. Right. And those and, tasks are clearly laid out in the Constitution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so by way of analogy, you know, say you're working on your house, right? You hire a contractor, you give them a work order. And, you know, to, to fill it, he needs access to your house. So you're like, okay, yeah, you, you know, I'll leave the door open. You can come in through the door. And then you leave, you come back and you find that he's like busted open your windows and he's been going in and out of your windows. You would say, yeah, that's wrong. You can't do that. And he said, well, I didn't you gave tell me you access. that you could do that. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you gave me access to your house and you didn't say I couldn't use the windows. You just told me I could use the door. No, no, your that, grant of use of the house was specific. It was limited yeah. to the tasks that I gave you. The Constitution's like that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, so many people get that wrong and they read the Constitution. They say it doesn't say the government can't do this. Yeah, well, it's not is... your master. The government's not your overlord. You have to tell it it can do something or it can't do it. And you exactly. remain supreme over it. You're its boss. It has to do what you say. Right. And the, what we as a political nation have done and told the government it can do is the constitution. That is that right. grant. And now it shouldn't be terribly surprising that people in government want to tell you that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. And like that, to be well, fair, you don't believe them. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I think part of the confusion is there are lots of political systems where that's not what is like every, to be everybody the else. Yeah. yeah. Everybody else. Practically than, everyone you know, else. Ma- Magna Carta is really Britain sort of got a head start before everybody else because King John was such a wacko, um, <laughs> that, or Prince John rather. But they 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 got um, Magna Carta in place, which you know de jure established that the people could at least bind the king to a contract, right? Um, so yeah. you know, wh- yeah. one thing I want to deal with real quick, just because it irks me, and mm-hmm. I know that some people are going to raise this objection. We've we've talked about government in terms of like a trusteeship, which is sort of like contractual terms. The phrase social compact may be coming to mind for some of you. And just the the, the knee jerk, I guess, sort of like lowest common denominator existentialist objection that you often hear to this is I didn't sign the social compact. Right. right? Yeah. Why, why should I be bound by things that my forefathers did? Well, you are okay just like everything else in your life you know you didn't get to choose who your parents were you were bound by the decisions that were made before you were born you can't say i didn't like being born in long beach i would prefer to be born somewhere else too bad that's not where you were born (laughs) you're governed in many ways by the decisions made by those who came before you the political order is in is very much the same as that we have that in in land contracts even we have binding covenants that run with the land if you buy land that has like an electrical pole on it. Yeah. There's an easement in that deed saying that people can come on, people from the electric company can come on and they can maintain that electrical pole. Right. You didn't sign that contract with the electric company. You've never met the electric company, but when you bought the deed, it already had that in it. This yeah. is not a novel concept. I like, honestly, this objection is so dumb. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, but, it, but you hear it all the time. It's <laughs> you know, it, it's the same. It's the same idea. Like you know, if the next presidential administration comes in and says, you know, we're not beholden to the national debt because we are not the ones who incurred these expenses. Uh, right. That's not going to work. <laughs> you know, no. you are the legal. It's heir a continuous to, legal yeah. entity, and that mm-hmm. entity occupies space. You know, space. Yeah. <laughs> and that space is space that you're occupying. Right. Yeah. So which you know, rules apply to you? The 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 alternative is not just to say I'm going to stay here and I'm just not going to be a part of this system. The the alternative is to go somewhere else. Basically, right. like you you could. <laughs> you can move to Canada. Yeah, I could, wouldn't recommend it. You could renounce U.S. citizenship <laughs> and take up citizenship somewhere else that you like better if you want. Sure, do that. Uh, but do that. yeah, <laughs> I don't recommend it. I really don't recommend it. <laughs> One of these days, we're going to do a series on whether or not it's actually a viable option to get your rights defended anywhere else on the globe. <laughs> That's ambitious, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway. I mean, I think I think everybody knows there's some countries it's probably not going to happen. So anyway, uh, you know, we we have to to probably wrap this up shortly, but uh, you know, just I, I think we chose this topic more than anything else because this is just something that irks me when I see people making sort of a, a basic error in how to read the Constitution. I think but, it's the number one misunderstanding of how our system of government works. I, I know, would we, definitely we, we yeah. say. We say consent of the governed. We say, you know, popular sovereignty, the rest of it. I think people think we mean voting when we say that. I think a lot of people probably do. That's probably a good point. But yeah, that's that's not what we mean. We mean that. No, it's, that the, the, the people could consent to a system in which voting plays no part. Right. And it would be consent of the governed. Yeah. You know, our constitution theoretically could have not had. I think it'd be a much worse system. I think voting's good. <laughs> but we, we still could have had popular sovereignty and have a system with no voting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think that's a fair point. At some point, we'll probably talk about that too. But the idea that, um, yeah, that consent of the governed just means like mechanical democracy, like people going to a place and voting, uh, and that right. that act is what makes America unique or made it unique is so misguided. Um, anyway. That is very French. And we address that. If you haven't listened to it, you can listen to that in our series on the French Revolution yeah. and why they were wrong. Anyway, uh, we should probably... We're a lot like the University of Wallamaloo, aren't we? Where you can teach any of the socialist philosophers as long as you make it clear that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, you're ready, everybody. Gather around, young and old. Uh, everybody who has any interest in crazy eccentricities through, in the law throughout the United States, throughout the world, and throughout all of history. Captain Kangaroo. All right. Uh, I'll try to be... You can pull, you can pull the file. Yeah, I'll try to be relatively quick with this, uh, but uh, got a few things, got a few things here. Um, As if we haven't seen enough insanity already. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, first thing up, I thought you might I thought be we were, I thought we were already doing Captain Kangaroo Court. It felt like what was it. that? It, it definitely yeah. felt like it. Um, <laughs> I thought this might interest you because, you know, you have a background, of course, in bankruptcy law. And this was a case involving yes. a bankruptcy judge. But uh, this is uh, so uh, the, the, it says the former CEO of Highland Capital Management, uh, James Dondero, believes novels written by U.S. bankruptcy judge Stacy Jernigan contain a, quote, evildoer character based on him. Ooh. Um, the issue. Wait, this judge is a novelist now? Apparently, yes. That, that was one I, of the things I know, thought. No, no offense to the bankruptcy judges that I know. Most of them. 
I wouldn't be lining up to buy their novels. If they yeah, you know, I thought that was one of the things that's of interest here is just the fact that there's apparently a working judge who nevertheless is interested in and has the time to write multiple novels, apparently. Yeah. Um, All right. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, I want to I want to you know s- skip uh, skip past some of the the details because basically you know it's it's um, defamation issues which we've talked a lot about lately actually interestingly but uh-huh. um, yeah your defamation case is pretty weak actually we're currently consulting with a client we're probably going to come in on a defamation case it's very weak but for different reasons than this one this <laughs> one's particularly weak because you can't prove that it was you yeah um, and but, if the statements weren't about you well then you weren't defamed I, I i do like some of the some of the details about the novel that came out um so uh, according to the petition the first novel, quote, describes the high-flying hedge fund managers as individuals that suck up money like an iRobot vacuum, seem to uh-huh. make money no matter what, and show outrageous amounts of hubris as part of their bro culture. <laughs> it strongly suggests a judge harboring bias against those operating in the hedge fund industry. Which... I think most bankruptcy judges probably do. They really abuse the system. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, that, that seems pretty much, uh, you know, right down the middle for a bankruptcy judge, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, that's I honestly, I don't have much of an issue with bankruptcy judges harboring a negative opinion toward that because in a bankruptcy context, I don't think that affects their rulings negatively. Yeah. Uh, and then this, this is my favorite part. Uh, so the, the fictional hedge fund is also, called this is the most hacky way of referring to hedge fund managers ever. Like yeah. everybody says this, this yeah. is not, this is not a new take. No. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not sure that I can speak to the literary quality of this. The novel. Wolf of Wall Street was, wasn't it? That was, I mean, it, yeah, uh, this is a well-worn uh, sort of stereotype. Uh, Ranger that wasn't Capital. a new concept then. I mean, that's what Wall no. Street was. The, the movie, that's, the, the that's Oliver fair. Stone film. Yeah. <laughs> um, Michael Douglas, right? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Ranger Capital, which is the fictional hedge fund, uh, Ranger Capital's manager is described as a reckless investment manager and a, quote, nasty litigant. <laughs> Jernigan had used the same language to describe Don Darrow. Um, that just made mm-hmm. me think. Uh, but just the word nasty. That's the only thing in quotes. So, And it also just makes me read it in uh, in Donald Trump's voice, because didn't he, he? He's a nasty guy. He, he called Jeb Bush <laughs> a nasty guy. Right? Yeah, yeah, he did. Anyway, because he said he'd take his pants down to moon everybody, (laughs) (laughs) or as was alleged by Donald J. Trump. I don't want to be sued for defamation. Uh I don't know if that's true about Jeb or not, but Donald Trump certainly said it. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Jeb seems not. Jeb seemed to disagree. Yeah, Uh. Yeah, I have to respond. I don't know why you wanted to respond to that. Just let it go. Everyone knows it's not true, Jeb. Um, anyway, uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm bringing it a little bit, uh, old school. Uh, I've got a couple of hot takes that I, I wanted to share. Oh, okay. Uh, that was a hot take. I hadn't seen that one before either. <laughs> um, so first off, this is just your, your classic misunderstanding quite a lot of, of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter users have, this is from yeah. Twitter. Of course, uh-huh. one it's from one of the twits mm-hmm. on Twitter. I okay, don't... so Mark Eskins, mm-hmm. who evidently paid to have a blue check on his account, says yeah. corporations have no rights. They are not people. Mm-hmm. And uh, That isn't true. In with... fact, if corporations had no rights, they wouldn't exist because the right. existence of anything is dependent upon certain freedoms of action that thing has. Yeah. So if they had no rights, like not a right to exist, for instance, yeah. then they I... wouldn't. So that's wrong. I also, corporations say... are people that... 
This is just wrong. This is wrong across the board. Also, we forgot to put periods at the end of his sentences. That, that may have been a stylistic choice, but I do have to say, using two phrases and eight words, he manages to be completely wrong on two things, which is impressive. Uh, sort pretty of good. Efficiency and economy of language. Yeah. Um, one error per every four words. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the whole corporate personhood thing, I think people really just get upset about the word person and they think, well, a company is a person. People, they're corporations. Yeah. <laughs> Basically uh, being a, a person in this sense just means you can be, you know, you can enter into contracts, you can be sued. You have a legal existence at all. Uh-huh. People uh, can seek recourse against you. You yeah. can't just abuse people without being beholden to the courts or anyone else. Right. That's why, that's why corporations have to be incorporated in certain states so we know which states have jurisdiction over them. Yeah. If they're not people, you know what the answer is to who has jurisdiction over them? It's very difficult. <laughs> Nobody has jurisdiction yeah. over them. They are a law unto themselves, and they can go around wreaking havoc. Because yeah. well, not... the alternative here is if, <laughs> if you're wronged by a business and it's not a, a corporate person, then you need to sue everyone who is involved and hope that, you know, they don't manage to deflect blame well enough that you're not sure who's really liable. That would be basically... Well, if if corporations weren't a thing, yeah, I would probably trans... You know, assuming I'm a rich guy that wants to do business, mm-hmm. I would probably transfer all of my assets other than the bare minimum that I need to live to an attorney. And then I would instruct that attorney attorney to conduct business operations in a certain way. Yeah. And then I would do things that are horribly unethical, get sued <laughs> by people and then have no money they could get from anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that and th- that is basically the the other way this could go. It's it's actually beneficial to almost everybody that corporations do count as people in our legal system. I don't think I'd actually be horrible if we didn't have them, but I could be <laughs> is the point. You could be. Yes, that's the, that's the main point. All right. So that that was uh, that was one hot take, and here is the other one. This one is a thread, uh, so uh, it's between the New York Times and someone named Mad Duberry. Who actually? Oh, that's a uh, they're pretending to be uh, Louis the the Sixteenth mistress. I forget which one of the oh. Louis. Uh, but yeah, wow, that was... that's a that's an obscure reference. Goodness. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Madame Dubert. Oh, it's on Twitter again. You told uh-huh. me New York Times, but it's not. It's well, Twitter. the New York Times is Twitter account. They have a yellow check. What does that mean? Uh, I think that's because they uh, lost their old blue one, and they. I think that's just like an emoji that you can throw in there. I'm not. I, I wouldn't swear to that. Not 100 percent sure about that. Why do people pay money for check marks? It's crazy. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a mother of two. I, I don't object to Musk doing it. I just don't know why anybody pays. Yeah. A mother of two students in Howard City, Michigan, filed a lawsuit claiming the public district violated her son's First Amendment rights by asking them to remove sweatshirts with the slogan "Let's go Brandon" on them. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And then Mad Duberry says, "Your First Amendment rights don't apply to school." Yeah. That's not right. <laughs> Schools are run by the government. Right. Um, so that's specifically where First Amendment rights do apply. Yeah. If there's anywhere where First Amendment rights apply, it's um, it's in government things. And um, uh-huh. schools... They're the specific people bound by the First Amendment. Yeah. Because it says Congress shall make no law. Right. <laughs> and I, I hope the, the response that this person would give is, well, it's a school. It's not Congress. Um <laughs> 
Uh huh. I mean, that actually is a fair point because the the, the, article, the the Bill of Rights was incorporated to the states later on through the Fourteenth Amendment. But I honestly, I, I feel like if you're even making that distinction, you probably don't understand those things already. Well, no, if, if you're making the distinction between that, well, that's not federal authority; that's only state uh, authority. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be making this argument in the first place. I I just meant someone thinking that there it's. <laughs> Not really about federal versus state, just that it's specifically Congress and, and the school is what makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, I really don't have a lot to to add to this. It's just uh, it's been a while since we've just had, you know, people blatantly being wrong. Uh, also, it's, in it's, this particular you way, don't, you don't usually see people openly attacking the First Amendment either. No, yeah, most people will say like, oh, you you know whatever speech is harm or that, that speech is violence because they have no clue what violence is. Yeah. Um, but they won't openly say like, no, I don't think that you should have first amendment rights. I, yeah. I don't believe in freedom of speech in application to this situation. Right. Most people will tell you they're in favor of freedom of speech. In some sense, at least. Yeah. Maybe not on Twitter anymore because like <laughs> there's that whole contingent that was really mad that Musk took over because he wanted free speech there or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean that that whole that whole situation is um I can't say it's gone very well as a, a business decision or as you know I can't speak as to the At least they have a way of making money now. They sell people these colored check marks. <laughs> and people uh, appear to buy them. Some some people do, which and it's it's also they they implemented a thing. I think this predated Elon actually. But uh people who have the check mark, their replies show up like at the top. Of, of reply threads really? um so yeah so the people whose comments <laughs> you see first are now mostly just a bunch of random people who decided they were willing to spend a hundred dollars a year to have a blue check oh, next that's to their name so funny that's um, so funny i'll leave you to I want, make i want a check mark i will pay money that will give me a colored check mark that allows me to howl into the void more loudly yeah uh and you know <laughs> well We'll leave it to your judgment uh, as so to whether that, that tends to be a high quality of commenter or not. But um, that is the way it is now. Uh, it's I, I really hate that Twitter's become like the de facto platform for like a lot of politicians. And it's yeah, it's not it's I, not I good. Know a, lot, a lot of journalists I correspond with want me to contact them on Twitter. I know it, it's it's not good. And, <laughs> you know. For a long time, for way longer than it really mattered, people made jokes about how, oh, I can't believe we're all on this stupid, terrible website. When I was like, why are you like, it's just the thing where you make a short joke and move on. But it has evolved uh-huh. into something that actually is actively detrimental they, to America. They treated stuff from, from President Trump's account, like stuff that he put on Twitter, like a social uh-huh. media website. They were like, this is an official White House statement. We're yeah. going to judge his character for this thing that he's posted on the Internet. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I, maybe I'm getting older. But like, I remember the days when the internet was where people would post videos and every comment would just be kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, we're of that generation, I guess, a pretty unique generation in retrospect, because it only lasted like eight years, but yeah. where it was just understood that everything on the internet was going to be heinous and stupid and awful. Yeah. And that well, was what I, it was for. When, I, when we when we went on YouTube, I was like, I don't want to upload videos to YouTube because every comment's just going to be kill yourself, fatty. <laughs> We haven't gotten any kill yourself, fatty. It's shocking. I know. It's, uh, times are a changing. Uh, so if you can be the first, if you want to comment that on our videos. <laughs> anyway, I think I think that's all we've got um, for this week. All right. So 
Thanks for joining us once again for also many of the things you hear on Captain Kangaroo Court are facetious. Please don't take them too seriously. But anyway, that's Captain Kangaroo Court for this week, and we'll see you folks again. Yeah, we're not doing this weekly, so <laughs> next time <laughs> next we time. meet, yeah. which will not be as long as the break between the last two. Yeah, and stick around for our ever popular disclaimers. Ah, oh, my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.